Let me also take this opportunity to wish every mother here a happy Mother's Day. Thank you for all of your uh, toil, your hard work, often thankless on our behalf. Well, let's take this opportunity to thank our, our moms. Um, thank you. Glad you are with us. A welcome to all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I invite you to turn in his word to 1 Kings chapter 6. 1 Kings chapter 6, verse 1. Uh, we'll be looking at chapter 6 and 7. Uh, both of these chapters, in one way or another, describe Solomon's temple. Uh, we won't re- be reading both chapters completely. We'll be reading selectively, so I'll let you know when we will be leapfrogging some of the verses. First uh, Kings chapter 6, verse 1. In the 400th and 80th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that that King Solomon uh, built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. And he made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary. And he made side chambers all around. The lower story was five cubits broad. The middle one was six cubits broad. And the third was seven cubits broad. For around the outside of the house, he made offsets in the wall in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. Jump to verse 11. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and not forsake the people of Israel. So Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood, and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls, and he, and he built this within as an inner sanctuary as the most holy place. All right, jump forward to chapter 7, verse 13. King Solomon sent and brought Hiram from Tyre. He was the son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze, and he was full of wisdom, understanding, and skill for making any work in bronze. He came to King Solomon and did all his work. All right, leap forward again. Verse 48, chapter 7, verse 48. So Solomon made all the vessels that were in the house of the Lord, the golden altar, the golden table for the bread of the presence, the lampstands of pure gold, five on the south side and five on the north, before the inner sanctuary, the flowers, the lamps, the tongs of gold, the cups, snuffers, basins, dishes for incense, fire pans of pure gold, and sockets of gold for the doors of the innermost part of the house, the most holy place, and for the doors of the nave of the temple. Thus, all the work that King Solomon did on the house of the Lord was finished. And Solomon brought in the things that David, his father, had dedicated, the silver, the gold, and the vessels, and saved them in the treasuries of the house of the Lord. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess that there is joy and peace and life only in your presence, only in fellowship with you. 
And it is our desire, Lord, that we would experience that joy and that peace more and more. Our Lord has taught us that eternal life consists in knowing you and in knowing the Son, and it is our desire to draw ever closer to you. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would deepen our faith. Grant us to walk before you with a boundless confidence that comes from a deep-rooted faith in the gospel. Uh, we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would cause our hearts to soar this morning as we contemplate your goodness to us. Uh, Heavenly Father, if there are pockets of darkness and rebellion in our lives, uh, things that we need to repent from, Lord, we pray that you would make that clear this morning and grant us to turn from wickedness and grow in increasing faithfulness. Uh, we ask, Lord, that you would graciously bless the proclamation of your word and feed us with your truth. Glorify your name in our midst, we ask. Amen. One way you could sum up the story of Scripture is uh, as God acting to bring a rebellious humanity back into his life-giving presence. Scripture begins with how God created everything, and he made everything good. There was no death, decay, violence, evil. All was as it should be. We were as we should be. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, were upright before the Lord. But instead of walking in glad submission to the king, they rebelled. They were disloyal to the king. And as a result, they lost paradise. They were cast out of the garden. And what's more, they lost the life-giving presence of God that was connected to Eden, life in the garden. The cherubim was set over the entrance to the garden, and life would now be lived apart from the life-giving presence of God. And the rest of Scripture, one way to make sense of it, the rest of Scripture describes what God is doing and has done to bring rebels back into the garden, back into his life-giving presence. And the passage we're looking at today in 1 Kings 6 and 7 describes how God takes a significant step forward in that process of bringing people to himself. Uh, we have a description of Solomon's temple, and this is a new chapter in that ancient story of God bringing people to his life-giving presence. What we'll see this morning as we look at the various details of the temple are two things. Uh, number one, we will consider what God's presence is like, what God's presence is like. And number two, we will consider how we get there, so what God's presence is like and how we gain access to that presence. Uh, notice, if you turn in your Bibles to chapter 6, that first verse begins with a chronological detail. It tells us when construction began, fourth year of Solomon, this would have been 966 BC. And we're, then we're told 480 years before, 1446, God liberated his people out of captivity in Egypt. So we, we know roughly where, when this happens, uh, and where it happens in uh, God's unfolding story. But the question is, why is this detailed in included? Right? We would expect details about the temple and what it looks like, and we get those. But why connect it to Israel's past? Why put a date on it? The best explanation I've come across uh, makes the case, I think correctly, that what we're being shown here is that this is a new era in Israel's history. There is discontinuity of a kind with what has come before. And to make this case, uh, Dale Ralph Davis in his commentary uh, draws our attention to Exodus 12, verses 40 and 41. 
And we're told to the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Again, notice the chronological detail. The reason it's included there is to say there is a, there's a new era. Israel lived as aliens in Egypt, as captives and servants in Egypt, but God has acted. And now they are free men and women. New chapter is beginning. And in the same way, uh, the author is telling us that there's a new era in Israel's history. Up to this point, they have, in a sense, continued their wandering. Not literally their wilderness wanderings, but life in the land for the last, oh, 350 years or so has been characterized by a certain kind of instability. They've been vulnerable. Their enemies uh, have often attacked them. There's been a great deal of uncertainty and instability. But with the rise of the monarchy... The kingship in Israel, prior to this, for several centuries, it was judges that ruled over Israel, not kings. The rise of the monarchy in Israel, there is increasing stability in the land. There is rest for God's people from their enemies. And this uh, chronological detail captures that. And this is confirmed, incident, incidentally, by 2 Samuel 7, 10 through 11, where God makes his promise to David. He says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. And notice the language, I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. So this is a time of stability in the land. Israel has peace from her enemies. And even the form of God's uh, presence among the Israelites changes. You move from a tent, which moves from place to place, right, a tabernacle, And now you have a structure, a building. It stays in one place. There's rest. There's stability. So new chapter of Israel's history. And then in the first 10 verses, 2 through 10, we're given a description of the exterior of the temple. Uh, 90 feet in length. It is uh, 45 feet high. And it is 30 feet wide. If you transfer the cubit, which is an ancient unit of measurement to our measurement. That's roughly what you get. Cubit was the measure from your elbow uh, to the tip of your middle finger. It was about 18 inches. And so that's the dimensions of the temple. There's also, we're told, uh, a house, a storage place of some kind that's adjacent to the temple, connected to it, leaning against the wall. This would have been a storage place. Uh, This would have been a place where the treasury that came into the temple was housed. Uh, We're told also that there was a courtyard. So there are three divisions, right? Within the sanctuary itself, you have the sacred place, uh, the, the second segment of the, the inner sanctuary, and then the courtyard, which was about uh, 30 feet wide and 50 feet long. 15 feet, not 50 feet, 15 feet long. Those are the dimensions of the temple. So then you move from verses 2 through 10, the outward dimensions of the temple, to the description of the temple on the inside. And the details here are more abundant. You get, you get a sharper picture of what's going on inside the tabernacle. Why is that the case? Well, who, who got to go inside the temple? The priest, the priests, plural, and then in the Holy of Holies, only the high priest. Who else got to go? No one, right? And so for the average Israelite, uh, they would have, what, what's going on inside this magnificent structure? So perhaps that's the explanation for more details about uh, concerning the inside of the temple. But what is it like? We're told that there is wood paneling everywhere, walls, floor, 
And it is all overlaid with gold. The word gold is used 11 times in this passage. And uh, the symbolism here, maybe the, the gold is perhaps intended to reflect the radiance of God's presence. When God's glory is revealed, that outward display of his greatness, there is a brightness and a radiance. And perhaps the gold inside the temple is meant to capture that radiant presence of God. Where he is, there is light. Uh, it's also possible, as we, we consider the, the sheer cost of this, that that gold is meant to say something about the way you serve God. You don't give him just bronze and silver. You give him gold. You give him the very best. You do the work that he's given you to do with excellence. Never mind that you're a volunteer, right, in the context of church life. Uh, ultimately, you're not serving just people or children or whatever. Ultimately, what you do, you do for God. Therefore, do it to the best of your ability. Uh, we ought not to serve God half-heartedly, sluggishly, reluctantly. Build it with gold. Uh, Paul will uh, urge the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3, when they build on the foundation that is Jesus Christ, when they engage in church-building work, to build with what? Precious stones. Well, what else do we see as we look at the inside of the sanctuary? Uh, we see that distinction between the most holy place and the rest of the sanctuary. The most holy place was a cube, 30 by 30 by 30. Uh, and inside that most holy place was the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the law. This was a box with two cherubim, two angelic creatures, spreading their wings over it. And then in the most holy place, in that place that we just mentioned, you have two angelic creatures, cherubim, 15 feet tall, overlaid with gold. And their wings are spread out, they meet in the middle, and they extend uh, for the whole width of the room, 30 feet. Now imagine that you are walking into this temple, going into its deep recesses in the back. You peer through the curtains. What greets you? These cherubim, 15 feet tall, overlaid with gold, wings stretched out. What would be the impression of that on you? This is a place you feel pretty comfortable, relaxed, at ease. Uh, no, this, this is a place where, you, where you, you sense that you're in the presence of the holy, the other. The cherubim are guardians of God's sacred presence, the throne room. This is an amazing place. That's what the symbolism suggests. And if we had read all of chapter 6, you would have noticed that carved into the wood panels all over the place are these uh, flowers that are opening and blossoming. There are palm trees. There are uh, flowers and palm trees even on the door into the temple. Now, what does it say about God that in his dwelling place, flowers blossom and palm trees grow? I'm going to let that question hang. I'm not going to answer it. We'll get back to it. But it is a, it is a question worth asking. What is the symbolism of the open flower of the palm tree, uh, doing in the very presence of God. Oh, let's leave that aside for now. Um, so chapter, chapter 6 ends with the, uh, a description of the temple structure itself, uh, its exterior, interior, uh, the imagery on its doors. And then we would expect to move seamlessly in chapter 7 to a description of the, the furnishings of the temple, its equipment. Instead, what we have for 12 verses is a description of Solomon's palace, his 
uh, construction activity for his sake. And then we get to the equipment in the temple and his furnishings. Now the question is, what accounts for this intrusion? Why do we have that material about Solomon slipped in there? I don't think, as some scholars think, that this is meant to reflect badly on Solomon. Right? His palace is even bigger than the temple. See, you know, Solomon's putting himself first. I don't think that's the point. At this stage in Israel's history, there is a tight connection between the presence of God among his people and the faithfulness of the king, as we'll see. And that is one explanation for why these two things go together. The temple and the king are closely connected. I would say, in addition, it also shows us something about the relative priorities of life. As impressive as Solomon's many building projects were, there was something more impressive still, and that is the household of God. Worship of the living God is more significant than even these other impressive undertakings. So then we move from Solomon, in verse 13, back to the temple. And at this stage, all of the various equipment, furnishings in the temple are described. Uh, We are told in verse 13 about a uniquely gifted craftsman by the name of Hiram of Tyre. Now, Hiram of Tyre should not be confused with the Hiram of Tyre in chapter 5, who is king. This individual is not a king. He's just a particularly able craftsman. Verse 14, he was the son of a widow of the tribe of Naphtali, and his father was a man of Tyre, a worker in bronze. And he was full of wisdom and understanding and skill for making any work in bronze. He came to, the, to King Solomon and did all his work. Now, if you're familiar with Scripture, and you're told that at the very outset of this building project, there was a guy uniquely wise, endowed with wisdom by the Holy Spirit, to build the, the things inside the temple, uh, that should remind you of someone. When the first tabernacle, symbol of God's sacred presence, was built among his people, we are told in Exodus... Thirty-one verses one through four. I have called by name Bezalel, and I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence and craftsmanship to devise artistic designs and in carving wood to work in every craft. So when God built His first tabernacle, He gave uh, Bezalel to Israel, who was uniquely gifted to build it, and in an analogous way, a similar way, He raises up another man, Hiram of Tyre to do uh, the work of temple construction and specifically the implements of the temple. We're told that he's responsible for building two massive pillars at the front of the temple. Uh, We're not sure if they're connected to the temple or just uh, sitting off by themselves, but these pillars were spectacular. Uh, One of them was named Jachin, which means he will establish. And that's probably a reference to the fact that God, Yahweh, will establish the throne of his servant David. That word establish is used frequently in 2 Samuel 7 when God promises to establish his throne. And the other pillar is called Boaz. In him is strength. The power of God's people is not in themselves, as Israel's history has taught her again and again. They don't conquer the Canaanites because they're a strong people and a numerous people. They conquer because Yahweh is their strength. And that pillar reminds them, in him is strength and Yahweh is strength. And significantly, if you look up at these pillars and you see the capital at the very top, it's decorated with pomegranates. You notice that that floral imagery, the fruit imagery from inside the tabernacle is continued even on these pillars. You get ripe pomegranates. 
What does that mean? Well, we'll get to that. Uh, we're told also of a sea, a massive bronze tank holding perhaps 11,500 gallons of water. Just massive. Uh, and it was probably used to cleanse the priests, both before and after their priestly uh, and, uh, services in the temple. They would bathe in this water, and it would cleanse them. And the imagery here is significant. To enter into the presence of God, we need to be washed. We need to be purified. This massive bronze cauldron is sitting on top of 12 oxen facing in every direction. What does that mean? I think the best explanation of the symbolism is that the 12 oxen represent the 12 tribes of Israel, and significantly they are facing outward, not inwardly. And that's the posture of God's people in every age, right? We don't look inwardly, fundamentally. We look outwardly to see how we can be a blessing to the nations. It's Israel's calling, and it's our calling, outward. And then there are various basins that have a smaller quantity of water, maybe 230 gallons, that were movable. And perhaps the symbolism here is of uh, the water streaming through in God's, in God's temple. But we get a description of the temple and what was inside the temple. Now, let's go back to the question that I posed earlier. What does it say about God that in his dwelling place, flowers blossom, palm trees grow, and pomegranates ripen? What does that symbolism convey about God? It conveys this. When you're in God's presence, you are in paradise. To be in the presence of God is to experience life in abundance. Where God is, there is life in all of its fullness. The symbolism reinforces the message of Psalm 16. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What is God's presence like? Like blossoming flowers, palm trees growing, water flowing. We are meant to see in this symbolism an echo of Eden. Many scholars recognize this, that you have this, the, you know, the wood paneling, the ripe pomegranates, the flowers, the fruit, all of this is meant to be an echo of Eden, an echo of paradise. Uh, even the cherubim, remember those angelic creatures that are protecting the throne room of God? If you read Genesis 3, you'll see that the cherubim are also mentioned in that context to protect the sacred space. Uh, in, in Eden, you have four rivers watering the ground. And also in the temple, you have an abundant water associated with refreshment and the life-giving presence of God. Eden is Eden. The garden is a paradise, not because it has lots of verdant trees and because the rivers are flowing through. Eden is Eden. Paradise is paradise because that's where God is. That's what makes it paradise. And that's what the temple imagery is conveying to us. To be in the presence of God is to have life, gladness, fullness. What does Jesus say in John 17? That eternal life consists in what? To know the Father and to know Him. Where God is, there is gladness and life. Our highest good is to be in His presence. And the essence of our misery as human beings is that we have lost the presence of God. We still hunger and thirst for it, and we seek to quench that hunger and thirst through temporal pleasures, through money, food, drink, sexual intimacy, power, influence. 
Uh, We seek to scratch the itch, but it can't be scratched, and quench the hunger that can't be quenched through the pleasures of this creation, because ultimately we can find satisfaction only in the presence of God. We're like those sailors who are adrift at sea, the sun beating down on them. They attempt to assuage their thirst by drinking salt water, but with every gulp, their thirst is simply amplified. The pleasures of this world can't satisfy. Only the presence of God can satisfy. That fundamentally is what we need. That fundamentally is what we've lost. Now, it's been a while since I've read The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Uh, Some of you may have read it in high school. I remember this book. Uh, it, it was, I don't know if you enjoyed it, but it certainly had, many of you had to read it. Uh, if I remember correctly, that novel ends with a really striking image. There's a picture of a boat that gets ever closer to the shore, and just as it's about to reach solid ground, the tide pulls it back. And then it gets close and close and close again, and the tide pulls it back. And that is a picture, a metaphor for human life. We're always striving for that thing that will satisfy we're always, we think we're getting closer, and then when it's within our grasp, it just kind of slips through our fingers. Gladness, life, abundant life, is ultimately elusive. And that image suggests not simply that it's elusive, but that in a sense we know it's elusive and we can't help ourselves. We know that this is a losing proposition. We know that this thing won't fundamentally satisfy, but we don't have a choice. We're still going to pursue it. Everybody knows that money won't buy you happiness, right? Everybody believes that at some level. Uh, but we still want to find out for ourselves, right? We still want to make enough money to see, is it really true? We know it doesn't satisfy, uh, and yet we can't help the pursuit of these things. Our, Our hearts were made to be satisfied in God, and if they're not, we pursue inevitably satisfaction elsewhere. This is tremendously practical, by the way. How do we, how do we escape the tyranny of created pleasures? This is one of the things that makes us miserable, There are things that we like, but that we like too much, and we have too much of them, and we would want to, we want to stop, and yet we find that their grip is strong. I remember a few years ago, there was an individual who who said to me that football had a grip on him, had a hold on him. He loved it. Uh, He spent a lot of time watching football, thinking about football. His Sunday routine, you know, was based on football, and so his strategy was he's going to take some time away from football, maybe a couple weeks, maybe a season not going to watch any football, and then he'll go back to it later. What do you think about that strategy? It has merit. That time away might help to dampen uh, his passion for football, but when next season comes along or eight weeks come along, if he hasn't learned to love something else, what is he going to do? He's going to be doing the same thing on Sunday that he was before. Ultimately, to change behavior, it's it's not enough to say, I need to stop. Not do it anymore. Try harder not to do it anymore. You have, your heart has to change. Your loves have to change. Uh, you have to learn how to delight in God, how to live in his life-giving presence, such that the tyranny of created pleasures begin to loosen their grip on you. Food and drink and lust, money, entertainment, whatever it is for you, those things cease to control you when your heart is satisfied in God. If you want to live freely and be content, you need to pursue a deeper or satisfying communion with the Lord. That's the ultimate path out of the bondage of created pleasures. Where God is, pomegranates ripen, flowers blossom, and palm trees grow. That's the picture. Where he is, there is life and joy. Now the question is, how do we get there? 
If paradise is where God is, how do we get into that life-giving presence? And this passage gives us a significant clue about how we might do that. I talked earlier about an intrusion, uh, the description of Solomon's palace. Well, there's actually another intrusion in this passage. I don't know if you caught it as we were reading. If you turn to chapter 6, verses 11 through 13, uh, there's like this unexpected statement where God speaks to Solomon. And this happens as the temple is being described. And here's what we're told. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. Concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your, your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will not forsake my people Israel. What needs to happen for God's presence to be among his people Israel? The king needs to be faithful. Do you see that? As the king is faithful, God says, I will dwell in the midst of my people. God is saying something significant about how his temple is built. Solomon, the gold is great, the stones are wonderful, but the king has a more fundamental building responsibility. You don't build fundamentally with stones and bronze and gold. You build through your obedience. Up to this point in Israel's history, the collective faithfulness of Israel determined her relationship with the Lord. When she was faithful, she experienced blessing. When she rebelled, she experienced God's judgments. And that's still true uh, to a degree. But there's a shift here. Notice that God's life-giving presence now becomes connected with the faithfulness of the king. As the king goes, so goes the nation. The king is the representative of the nation, and when he walks in faithfulness to Yahweh, the nation flourishes. And we'll see this uh, throughout the remainder of 1 Kings, 2 Kings. When there is a faithful king, Israel flourishes. And when there is uh, a wicked king, God's judgment falls on the people. Now the question is, was Solomon this king? God says, Solomon, build a temple for me, not just through stones, but through your faithfulness to the covenant. Was Solomon that king? I mean, his, his reign begins impressively enough. Uh, pomegranates are ripening. Everyone's under their fig tree. He's exercising wisdom. It does look a little like paradise. If only we could hit pause during that golden era. Instead, what happens? Solomon's heart drifts towards the worship of other gods because of the foreign wives that he marries. Uh, things go downhill, as indeed they did for David with Bathsheba and Uriah. Solomon is not the one. As Mark Dever once put it, uh, every king of Israel bows his head, extends his hand, and says, I'm not the one. Keep looking. I'm not the one. Keep looking. <clears throat> uh, in Hebrews 10.7, we're told that this is what Jesus says when he came to this world. Hebrews 10, 7. Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. The eternal Son of God becomes one of us, and he says, I've come into this world to do the will of God. I've come to give my life uh, to unqualified obedience 
to God the Father. Uh, Jesus' obedience was spotless, perfect, and pure. He is the king that Israel and indeed the world has been waiting for. Theologians distinguish between the active and passive obedience of Jesus. And this distinction reflects the two dimensions of God's law. God's law includes moral requirements, things that we should do and not do. Honor your father and mother. It's a good day to remember that. Uh, Tell the truth. Put God at the center of your life. These are some of God's moral requirements. And Jesus obeyed these, and theologians describe this as his active obedience, his perfect submission to the moral requirements of God's law. But there's another aspect to the law, and that is its curses or its sanctions if you fail to keep the moral requirements. The law describes what we ought to do, but then it describes what will happen if we don't do it. If Israel proves unfaithful, there are covenant curses. God will judge sin in this way. And when Jesus stood condemned for us at the cross, when he died in our place, he passively obeyed. That is, he took the curse of the law upon himself. Think about the symbolism of the temple. On the one hand, it's a symbol of God's presence among his people. On the, one, on the other hand, it's saying, stay back, isn't it? Only the priest could go in, and only the high priest could go into the most holy place. And he could only do it once a year. And those cherubim, we're saying, not too close, because God's presence is lethal for sinners, for rebels. How is it that we can enter back into God's life-giving presence? It's because Jesus at the cross lost his life-giving presence. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is what Jesus says. He endured the curses of the law that we might receive the blessings of the law. Our sin was counted to him. All those who trust in Jesus, their sin was counted to Jesus. And he was accursed in their place. And at the same time, his perfect obedience to the law is counted to us that we might stand spotless and holy and righteous in the sight of God. It is because the king obeyed God perfectly. It's because our representative, the second Adam, obeyed God perfectly that the doors of the temple swing open to us. And we can walk with confidence into the very presence of God because Jesus has done it. Because of his obedience, God now dwells in his true temple, the church. God, through the Holy Spirit, dwells in our midst. This is what uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. The temple, that physical building, was an anticipation of the church. And through the perfect obedience of Jesus Christ, God's life-giving presence is now experienced among the, the people of God, the new covenant people of God, the church. Because of his obedience, God dwells in our midst. He dwells in our midst corporately, and he dwells in, in us as individuals, our bodies, 1 Corinthians 6 is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And all this because of Jesus' obedience. Now, there are three implications of this that I want us to consider. Number one, if the temple doors swing open to us because of Jesus' obedience, not ours, then we should approach God reverently, but also with confidence. Notice that, notice what the teaching of 1 King implies. We don't come before God, and we don't enjoy His presence because we've made the right choices and have done the right things. 
Access to God is grounded entirely in the work of Christ. It is because of his perfect obedience that we can come before God. That means that however wretched we are, whatever sins we've committed, if we're trusting in Jesus, none of those things can keep us from Jesus Christ, can keep us from the Father. There'd be every reason to lack confidence if access to God's presence were fundamentally grounded in what we do. We have good days, we have bad days, and even the good days aren't so good, right? We'd never be able to approach with confidence because as long as we are trusting in ourselves, there's no access to God. But if we come to God through King Jesus, through his perfect obedience, then we should come boldly. God is always ready to welcome us into his presence. You are as accepted before God on your best day as on your worst day because your access to God is not fundamentally grounded in what you do. It's grounded in what Jesus has done. And so this should produce, produce a freedom and a joy and a confidence before God. And by the way, that, that, that grace, that undeserved goodness that brings you into a relationship with God, that grace continues to define your relationship with God after you become a believer. This is important to recognize. We sometimes feel, oh, I'm saved by grace, and now it's, I'm kept by striving, I'm blessed by striving fundamentally. And that's not true. Imagine for a moment that uh, there's a couple, they want to adopt a child from some distant country, and uh, they go through all of the bureaucratic paperwork, they interact with the officials, the government officials, it's time-consuming, it's burdensome. They blow through all their savings to bring this little girl into their home. Uh, they visit that child from time to time as they are able, and then finally, at long last, that girl is able to come into their home. She's with them. Now, let's say that little girl approaches them and says, hey, can I have a stuffed animal? It's, it's inconceivable that those parents would say no. We've already spent so much uh, to bring you here. Be grateful for what you have, right? No, it, it's inconceivable. I'm assuming the stuffed animal is compatible with the child's good, of course. But it's inconceivable because of what they have already done to bring her there, right? G given the effort and the love exhibited and all of that work to bring her into their household, if they've done that greater thing, of course they'll do the lesser thing. And in the same way, if God, when we were enemies, at the cost of his son's life, has made us his children, if he has done that when we were absolute rebels, how much more can we be confident that he'll continue to be gracious to us now? Our relationships with the Lord begins with grace, and it continues with grace. It's God's character to be generous in giving to his people. We should have a boundless confidence in him. Don't you find, those of you who have walked with the Lord for a longer period of time, what, what surprises you is not how severe God is, but how patient and gracious He is to us. So the first thing then we notice as we consider the fact that it is through Jesus we enter the life-giving presence of God. It should produce confidence. It's His work, not ours, so we should come boldly. Second thing, second implication is that Jesus is the one building the church. He's the one building his temple. That's what the king does, right? The king builds the temple. Jesus is building the church. And he builds it not just when he converts us and brings us to himself, but then he continues through his Holy Spirit to build the church to a place of spiritual maturity. But how does he do it? He does it through us. He does it through the members of the church. 
Just as God uh, gave Hiram of Tyre wisdom through the Holy Spirit to build what was needed in the temple, Jesus Christ continues to give his people through the Holy Spirit the gifts that they need to build up the church. Christ uses the diverse gifts that we have to strengthen us and to build the community up to a place of maturity. Tell me what you think about what Peter Lightheart says in his commentary on the temple. See what you think. See if you're persuaded by his reading. Uh, Lightheart is meditating on the different instruments that are used in the temple, and here's the conclusion that he comes to. These temple utensils picture the people of Israel, each gifted in a unique way to contribute to the service of God. Those who are shovels in the temple should shovel with all their might. Those who are snuffers should snuff to the glory of God. The basins and the bowls devote themselves wholly to God's service. He sees in these different tools a picture of the diversity of gifts that the risen Lord has given to the church. Are you a bowl? What are you in the temple of God? What what is your gift? In some ways, that's not even the most important question. As you look around and you see the needs in front of you and you try to enhance life for your brothers and sisters, you find what your gifts are. Uh, The crucial thing is taking initiative to start being a blessing to other people. Do you remember the oxen under that bronze cauldron? Of course you do. Uh, They were facing outward, weren't they? This This is the posture of the Christian. Life is not just about you, your quiet time, your family's doing well. Our posture should be outward focused. We think about our brothers and sisters in the church, and then we think about the good of the nations in the world. We get out of ourselves. To grow spiritually, it's not, to, it's not enough to be a monk. I shouldn't disparage the monks, should I? Uh, uh, <laughs> it's not enough to go off and be by yourself is the point that I'm making. Uh, you need to be with other people. You need to take initiative to, to build them up, to strengthen them. Uh, How are you contributing to this great building project that King Jesus is undertaking? What gifts do you have to help the church move forward? Administrative gifts? Are you a sympathetic listener? A lot of talkers in the world. We need people who can listen well. Um, Are you, do you have a passion for good works? Do you love to teach? Whatever it is, use the abilities, the opportunities that God has given you to advance the, the mission of the church. The question that I want to leave you with is, how are you doing that? At a minimum, I hope we're all praying for the church, for the Spirit to be working, for Christ to be building us up. Um, We need to increasingly think about how to take initiative to help each other follow Jesus Christ. And, And I want to also add, this doesn't just mean serving in the formal ministries of the church. That's valuable. Volunteering with children, that kind of thing, helpful. But every, all initiative, initiatives that we take to help others follow Jesus are a part of this temple-building work. Finally, last thing I want you to see. If you're trusting in Jesus, there is no such thing as a sacred, ordinary divide in your life. If through Jesus you have come into the life-giving presence of God, the doors of the temple have been opened to you, and you now dwell in the presence of God, all of life is sacred. All of life is lived in his presence. Sometimes you see this attitude among Christians that there's a part of life that is spiritual, whatever that means. It's Bible reading, prayer, going to church on Sunday. Those are, that's the spiritual part of life. But then there's all of the ordinary stuff, how you deal with your coworkers, 
how you use your money and your time, uh, how you speak to your family at the end of a long day. That's just, ah, that's the other stuff. That's the ordinary part of life. That doesn't matter. What matters is the spiritual stuff. If that's how you're thinking, if you've got this dichotomy, you're not seeing life clearly. If through Jesus you dwell in the very presence of God, then all of it is holy. All of life is meant to be offered to God as worship. All of life is meant to be lived in his presence. Imagine for a moment that you were able to walk into Solomon's temple and even step into the holy of holies. How would being in that place shape your attitude, your speech, your conduct? Certainly would make an impact, wouldn't it? In the same way, recognizing that we live before the face of God in his very presence at all times, there should be a longing to offer our lives, our speech, everything that we are and have back to him as an act of worship. Everything in life, not just when we gather on Sunday, everything in life should be offered to God as an expression of honor and love. Through our king, through his obedience, we have been brought near. So let us give to God the worship that is his due. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have brought us in to your presence. Uh, what we most need is not the fleeting pleasures of this life. What we most need is you. And we give thanks, Lord, that at the high cost of your son's life, you have pardoned us and claimed us as your children. Father, help us to live with an awareness that we, all of life is lived in your presence. Help us to live passionately, Lord, for you. Amen.